Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. My name is Jelena Golubovich, and today I am very pleased to be talking with Catherine Baker about her new book, which just came out last year, 2018, from Manchester University Press. The book is called Race and the Yugoslav Region, Post-Socialist, Post-Conflict, Post-Colonial. So Catherine, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. Despite all the technical difficulties we seem to be having. Um, so reading this book, I, I loved it. It really felt like going through a kind of treasure chest because I've read many books about Yugoslavia, but this one was constantly seeming to produce uh, new angles or new information that might have been deemed too peripheral or possibly even irrelevant in more standard accounts of the region. And the way you achieve this is by decentering ethnicity, which so far has been the primary framework through which both scholars and journalists have approached the former Yugoslavia, or more particularly, ethnic conflict has been this framework. But at the beginning of your book, you pose a question that is deceptively simple, and you ask, what does race have to do with the Yugoslav region? So if we could begin with you telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to write this book and how you came to foreground race in the Yugoslav region. Certainly, thank you. So I think I wrote this book because I was dissatisfied with my previous books and I was dissatisfied particularly with the way that I had handled race as an, as an aspect of, of social identity and indeed as a, a structure of, of power and knowledge and feeling. And, you know, I can put that into words now, but I wasn't able to put that into words at the time when I was doing my PhD, for instance, and doing the work which would lead on, lead on to my first book. Um, so my PhD was on popular music and narratives of identity in Croatia since 1991. Um, so, you know, I was looking a lot at ethnicity and nationalism in that, and particularly thinking about the, the sort of symbolic construction of ethnicity through symbolic boundaries of self and other if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, the kind of approach which already, you know, a lot of, you know, ethnomusicologists and other people researching popular music were beginning to use, you know, in understanding the kinds of constructions of Europe and the Balkans, for instance. Um, I was doing research in 2005 to 2008 PhD. So, you know, those, you know, those were the big kind of agendas that was already kind of moving on beyond the sorts of focus on, you know, just ethnic antagonism as such, which was, you know, seemed to a lot of scholars, I think, to be a pressing question that needed to be answered, you know, after the, after the Yugoslav wars. And, you know, already a more kind of constructivist view of ethnicity and a more kind of contingent view of ethnicity emerging. Um, one of the books that influenced me a lot during my PhD was Alex Bellamy's work, um, and he was looking at um, the sort of discursive struggles over what 
was Croatian national identity anyway in a lot of different fields of political and social and cultural practice. And so, you know, I was very well equipped to interrogate, you know, all the different ways of, you know, narrating Croatian cultural identity with reference to Europeanness, with reference to the Balkans that, you know, I was encountering through the, you know, throughout popular music itself and throughout media discourses about popular music. Um, so, you know, that was the, you know, that was what the, the book set out to do. And I was pleased with it. Um, the, the reception of the book was good as well. And, you know, it's, you know, still a book which is, you know, inspiring people to, you know, inspiring people to research agendas and studying popular music and, and also in sport performances as well. Um, you know, so it's been, you know, but people researching the politics of sport and nationalism in Croatia and the rest of the post-Yugoslav region been able to been able to turn to as well. Um, but I look back on it now and I think I've written an entire book about popular music and hardly said anything at all about race in it. And, you know, kind of the perspective of, you know, the history of transnational popular music in the, you know, in the, in the 20th century, the, the kind of way that Paul Gilroy, for instance, would look at music in, in the Black Atlantic and, you know, all of the different aspects of popular music in which, you know, the creativity and struggle of the black diaspora has influenced. From my perspective now, it seems why was, not only why did I end up writing a book about popular music which had nothing to do with race, but why was the the agenda of Southeast European studies not even pushing me to do that in the way that, you know, it was pushing me to to be able to notice, you know, the slightest reference to Europe and the slightest reference to the Balkans and, you know, all of the kind of symbolic and spatial hierarchies then that were that were connected to that. So the way that I was kind of, when I was first beginning to put back the satisfaction to words was really no more sophisticated than, you know, what would Southeast European cultural studies look like if instead of Said and Orientalism, where so much of the, you know, obviously Maria Todorova's work and Millet's back at Hayden's work, clearly I know they've got different perspectives on how Orientalism relates to the Balkans, um, but, you know, together they have you know, together, together they set that agenda. Um, compare, you know, compared to that, um, the, the analytical toolkit that, you know, Southeast European studies as my home discipline was giving me, you know, wasn't pushing really any, you know, wasn't really pushing me to make any more sense at all of, you know, identifications with whiteness or representations of blackness beyond anything that would just sit in the sort of category of Europeanness and modernity, if that makes sense. Um, and, you know, certainly it wasn't making the, you know, the kinds of complex, you know, it wasn't questioning the kinds of complex relationships between, you know, for instance, ideas of blackness and ideas of Americanness that, you know, Adriana Helbig has done in, you know, her work on hip hop in Ukraine, which came out a few years ago. Um, I wish that book had been around when, you know, when I was do when I was doing my PhD and, you know, 
other, you know, other people who are working on music at the same time were, were, do, were doing theirs. Um, you know, because that, you know, that's a really good example of kind of crystallizing some, some of those questions. Um, but to, you know, to kind of step back from that a little bit, um, ethnicity was on the agenda in a way that race wasn't. Um, and, you know, ethnicity was already, you know, was already being decentered. Um, and, you know, we've seen that in the, kind of work on you know social socioeconomic inequalities in Yugoslavia and, and then the Yugoslav wars. Um, and you know that that was something that I was contributing to during my postdoc. Um, I did a postdoctoral research project which was about um, translation and interpreting and peacekeeping in Bosnia. And you know in that project wow. you know looking at the the experiences and narratives of locally recruited people in Bosnia who worked as interpreters for foreign peacekeeping forces. Um, you know, they you know, they were talking about experiences of post-conflict and post-socialist precarity in a way that was not necessarily influenced by ethnicity all of the time. Um, so, you know, through that work I was you know, kind of, you know, contributing to the way that ethnicity as an analytical category was kind of, you know, was already being decentered. And a really good example of that, for instance, is the, the social inequalities and discontent in late Yugoslav socialism, um, which Rory Archer and Igor Duda and Paul Stubbs edited. Um, where then does does race come in? Um before I even knew that I was going, that I was going to write this book. Essentially, I wanted to to be able to answer that in my own teaching, um, and so you know, it was initially a case of you know, what do I need to read further in order to be able to encourage students to be able to talk about race on a global scale as well as ethnicity, um, and you know, to be able to look at it in a more complex way than simply ethnicity as Balkan equivalents of what Western Europe and North America knows as race. Um, because actually, you know, these are the overlapping ideas, but, you know, they, they can't be reduced to one another. So context then is that in 2013 and 2014, um, I had done my PhD in mid-2000s at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London. And I've then gone back a few years later to, to teach for a year. Um, I was on a part-time teaching fellowship, teaching mainly master's courses about nationalism and ethnic conflict. I then got a, a job at Hull, which is where I still am. And a couple of years after that post at UCL had finished, um, a group of black and ethnic minority students in the wider university um, launched a campaign called Why is My Curriculum White? They also launched another one called Why Isn't My Professor Black? What they were interested in was, you know, essentially decolonizing the, the curriculum, you know, in a structural mm -hmm. sense in terms of problematizing, you know, who is teaching it and why are black and ethnic minority staff underrepresented, but also in terms of the politics of knowledge within the curriculum, you know, where are, you know, where are black theorists, where are theorists of colour in general, where is theoretical production from the global south? And, you know, sort of having that challenge put into words and, you know, really made me reflect, okay, if, ha if you were still teaching at CIS, 
how would I respond to this? Mm-hmm. And that was um, what led me alongside simply, not simply at all, um, but you know, alongside being part of digital feminist spaces at you know exactly the time when you know many you know many more white feminists were being exposed to much you know to much more complicated discussions about intersectionality and you know being confronted with the challenge to you know to really understand you know their positionality and their whiteness and why hadn't they why hadn't we been reading and using these perspectives until now. So all of those things coming together. And, you know, I've thanked Flavia Jordan in particular in, in the acknowledgements for the race and the ego thing region. Um, because, you know, it was her writing on, you know, her writing on the idea of Europe, which really made, okay, is the, you know, is the, the Europe borders and, Condemning thousands of migrants to die in the Mediterranean, the same Europe that Southeast European national identities are aspiring to. So, really, I would say that was how the the work that became the book came about. Great, yeah. I I, I wish that your book had been around when I was doing my MA because I definitely agree with you about how you know certain disciplines can take us to draw certain parallels or make certain types of conclusions while completely disregarding entire other regions of thought and um you mentioned this in answering the last question but the sort of paradox here is that eastern european studies it neglects questions of race but it actually draws on the contributions of postcolonial theory and critical race theory and you see um, Edward Said's notion of Orientalism, very much popularized and finding an expression in the notion of nesting Orientalisms from Milica bakic or in Balkanism from Maria Todorova. So this is a bit of a complex picture uh, where there is some engagement between Eastern European studies and critical race studies, but it doesn't seem to reach all the way. Uh, I think, as you put it, was it just sort of draws you know, a, a mode of analogy or a sort of a, a parallel or an equivalence, um, but it doesn't go ahead and make that connection. And in your book, this is the this is the framing by which you differentiate this, a mode of analogy and a mode of connection. Um, so if you could just describe for listeners what you mean by these two modes, perhaps beginning with outlining the mode of analogy and then elaborating on what a mode of connection would offer instead. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll take an example of you know another article that was you know which just which had just come out in the year that I was doing my masters, and you know then I think it was really influential on you know anyone who was studying kind of post Yugoslav national identities around that kind of time. Um, and so that's the um, the article by Maple Rasha and Nicole Lindstrom, Balkan um, is beautiful, and what that was doing um, was it was analysing three politically very different discursive positions in 1990s Croatia. Um, so, you know, the discourses of Franjo Tudjman as a nationalist, Vlado Gotovac as a, as a liberal, and Boris Bruden as a critical intellectual. And what they were arguing was that all of the, all of 
all of those few people in their own ways were still mobilizing the idea of the symbolic opposition between Europe and the Balkans and attaching Croatia into Europe and constructing a symbolic boundary of self and other, and then the Balkans are on the other side of that. The Balkans are what Croatia should not be. You know, even though each of them, you know, was articulating a different vision of what Croatia should be, they were all using that European versus Balkan distinction in in order to get that across. Um, so that was the that was the point that um, Russia and Lindstrom were making, um, and. As part of as part of explaining their framework, as well as drawing in Bakich Hayden and Todorova, and therefore by extension Said, um, they uh, a little bit um, to um, one critical race theorist, David Theo Goldberg, um, and Goldberg is somebody who's written about um, on a on a, on a on a global scale. Um, so, you know, importantly, you know, it's not just the the same US framework of race around the whole of the world, even if sometimes US sociologists have assumed that it is. Um, you know, similarly, even if you you know, even if you look at the politics of race from a UK perspective, um, formations are very different from the US in important ways. Um, I'm using formations there, which is the the phrase Howard Winant and Michael Oak. Michael Omi use. Um, they talk about global formations of race a lot. And you know, that kind of help kind of helps us emphasize the the processes, the ideas, the feelings that go into that go into constructing race and making it meaningful and reproducing it again and again. Um, you know, we we know that ethnicity and nationalism work like that. Um, you know, from the point of view of where the study of nationalism today and you know so it's you know a sim- you know a similar dyna- dynamic with race in terms of that continual reproduction um but anyway um so goldberg is somebody who looks at you know different kinds of formations of race globally um even though like many well practically all critical race theorists um about the only part of globe that he doesn't account for almost is central and eastern europe um so, you know, even in the critical race theory literature, you know, there is a gap in, you know, there's a gap in theorizing, you know, where's the, the former state socialist space fit in. Um, so anyway, what Matter and Lindstrom pick up from Goldberg is, you know, the way that he looks at stigmatization. Um, so, you know, obviously the, the stigmatization of blackness, you know, is the, you know, is the foundation of racism and the foundation of white supremacy. Um, so, you know, they are, you know, so they're suggesting that, you know, the way that Balkanness is stigmatized is essentially equivalent to the stigmatization of blackness um, elsewhere. I might be putting that a bit more bluntly than they do, but that's kind of the, the conceptual move that they're making in order to get the title of the article. Um, so, you know, the title of the article is Balkan is Beautiful. Um, what they're suggesting by the conclusion, you know, is that maybe maybe in Croatia going forward, you know, the, the Balkan aspects of its national identity and its cultural history can, you know, can then be reclaimed and maybe that have some emancipatory potential. Um, so, you know, the analogy between, you know, Balkanness and blackness is helping them talk about stigmatization and, you know, it's helping them talk about reclamation 
potentially as well. Um, so, you know, that's what I would define as a mode of analogy. Where a, a mode of connection would be coming in would be to say, okay, but how has the separation between Europe and the Balkans already been racialized? And where I think, you know, where I think that has got furthest along actually is in, you know, is in ethnomusicology and popular music studies um, and, you know, being able to, you know, being able to talk about the, the racialization of Roma as part of the ways in which, you know, all of these, all of these tropes and stereotypes of the Balkans, you know, have, you know, have been constructed and articulated again and again. Um, and, you know, it's particularly in the study of music and popular music, you know, where I think that has gone Harvest. Um, and yet, even then, you know, it's still usually, though less so than it used to be, circumscribed within the region itself, rather than also fitted into the, into the global platform, the global politics of race. I think there's one thing that's um, thinking back over how we framed the question at the beginning. Um, the ways in which East European studies, as you put it, has kind of drawn on critical race theory through Said's Orientalism. Said himself doesn't, arguably really doesn't do as much with race as he could. Um, you know, he's talking about colonialism clearly, but how far is he talking about race specifically? And, you know, then, then if he isn't, if he downplays race, and, you know, that is a, you know, that is a critique of Said that's been made, does that then partially account for, you know, why we've ended up in, in Southeast European studies, you know, with a kind of, you know, post-coloniality without race, almost? And that was, you know, that was how I put it in an article last year from Journal Interventions. Um, critical race theory, I think, adds something more to that um, and it adds in the history of the way that coloniality really was kind of predicated on racializing the colonized as less than human. So it's the legacies of how that was done and it's the imaginations of, of bodies and culture that, that produced and then how it was spread out all over the world. Um, that is what's given racism its structural power. And you know, that structural power is what we need to be naming as, as white supremacy. So there perhaps there itself was already one transformative step for understanding you know, coming to understanding race from the perspective of having thought, you know, much more about ethnicity and nationalism than race and racism. Um, understanding how, how black scholars and other scholars of colour and white allies have, have theorised race on, on a global scale, one of the transformative steps, I think, is understanding the idea of white supremacy is not just about extremists and white hoods. It's about a structure um, a structure of knowledge, a structure of power, a structure of feeling, a structure of, you know, ordering what people know or aren't supposed to know about the world. Thank you for that great answer. I want to go back into some of the chapters of the book now. Um, I have sort of the next couple of questions are more of like a chronological move through this history, kind of alternative history, even that you're giving of the region once race becomes foregrounded. And one of the histories that sometimes gets buried with the focus on ethnic conflict is the history of Yugoslavia in the non-aligned movement. 
I was actually in Marrakesh last year and saw that they have a street named Yugoslavia, which made me extremely happy. But through the non-aligned movement, we see this popular narrative of this colorblind anti-imperialist solidarity that brought together Yugoslavia and the so-called third world as allies during the Cold War. And in this book, you bring this history out of the shadows, but you also complicate this colorblind solidarity narrative in some really interesting ways. So I'd love if you could speak about that. Absolutely. I mean, I think here, this really is one of the, you know, one of the areas where the way in which I was able to write the book was influenced by, you know, research other people were doing at the same time. Um, so, you know, I mean, as well as mentioning, you know, someone like Konstantin Kilibada, who was already writing about um, Yugoslavia and the non-line movements and the whiteness as well as just the Europeanness of the Yugoslavs. Um, there's an excellent book chapter of his from, from 2010 that was already putting we're already put, put, putting this kind of thing on the table. Um, people like um, Serdan Vucetic, Jelena Subotic were, you know, were beginning to, you know, were beginning to interrogate this as well. Um, a number of us were at um, a couple of conferences in, in Graz and in London in 2016, for instance. Um, so, you know, even as, even as I was writing the book, you know, I was in dialogue with, you know, other people who were, you know, preparing, you know, articles that were spotlighting particular aspects of this. Um, so, you know, the, the article for the Journal of International Relations and Development that, um, Yelena and certain Sergeant published last year, for instance. Um, so, you know, I feel here that, you know, I'm sort of posing a, a collective question more than a, a question that, that, I, that I've come up with myself. Um, because since I'm able to pose it in the book, you know, it comes from, you know, it comes from hearing about the, the research others were doing, the questions, the questions that we were posing. And, the, the kind of turn towards studying the, the kind of global history of state socialism anyway, what was happening. Um, hearing about all that and reading about all that, you know, at the time that I was already putting, putting the book together and, you know, reflecting on where were the, where were the global politics of race manifesting in, in popular music, for instance, or in peacekeeping or, you know, in the, the areas that I'd recently, I'd researched most myself. Um, you know, this is, you know, it's really a case of, you know, you know, a number of conversations which, you know, then then led me to pose those questions about the non-line movements in the chapter of the book, which deals with the various kinds of historical formations of race, which 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 have been present in the Yugoslav region. And you know, by the time that I get to state socialism, you know, I've been talking, for instance, about um, Venetian formations and the formations of race, you know, which were circulating through the through the German speaking cultural area. And in the in the same kind of way that Miglena Todorova's work on Bulgaria, you know, spotlights, you know, European and American and Soviet formations of race all circulating through Bulgaria and being taken up more in, you know, different social and intellectual settings at different times. Um, you know, with the, Yugos with the Yugoslav region, you know, just as many formations, if not more, you know, have been part of, you know, at least some of the region's intellectual and 
social and, and cultural history. Um, so the anti-colonial solidarity of the, you know, of Yugoslav communism was coexisting with identifications with Europeanness and modernity and ideas about European civilization, which already were part of thinking in the region. Um, so you get a contradiction which you also do see in you know social you know socialist ideology in the in the USSR and, and in the Soviet bloc. Um, but on the one hand their geopolitical identity is about solidarity with the third world, is about anti-imperialism. And the contradiction, you know, then is between between that and the idea that state socialist countries were, you know, were more, you know, were more advanced because of because of being in Europe. Um, and therefore by having made the advances in industry that they had and by having made the advances in you know communist organizing itself that they had um you know but they then had something to had something to teach the third world so it's an you know that was an asymmetric relationship um but you know how how individuals position themselves within it really could really could vary a lot um one example I mention in in the book for instance comes from work that um Peter Wright has done on, on the experiences of, of African students in Yugoslavia in the 1960s. And so, you know, what he found, you know, is that African students in Belgrade were making complaints about racism. And, you know, then they were, you know, they were taking that to, to communist officials who were in charge of their liaison. And, you know, sometimes encountering responses along the lines of, you know, there can't be racism in Yugoslavia because, you know, this is a communist country and it's a great ally of the third world, etc. Um, so that has, has striking parallels with, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, the kind of white liberal exceptionalist ways of disavowing racism. Um, you know, the sort of responses that, um, you know, people like Eduardo Bonilla Silva or Robin DiAngelo talk about, you know, this, you know, the disavowals of where racism can exist in, you know, progressive or liberal institutions. Um, we, we see, I suggest, you know, an, an equivalent or even an expression of that in the, in the kinds of disavowals of racism that those African students were encountering. And, you know, they were perceiving it. It was social reality to them. But those, you know, those clashes of those clashes of lenses, those clashes of frames of perception, um, those are exactly the kinds of interpersonal encounters and interpersonal politics through which structural racism works. Um, so if we move chronologically now, we come to, to the end of the Cold War, which effectively was destabilizing, you know, Yugoslavia's place in the non-aligned movement, this balancing between East and West. And we also see wars erupt in Yugoslavia in the early 1990s, of course. And with this, the door really seems to close on these narratives that are aligning Yugoslavia with the third world. You know, this kind of place where, as you so nicely put it, uh, racism can't possibly exist. 
And instead, the prevailing rhetoric after the end of the wars is what you mentioned earlier, this return to Europe and this return to modernity, um, where several Yugoslav nations see themselves as having fallen from grace, to use a great expression from Stef Janssen, uh, fallen from grace and needing to you know, climb back up the old civilizational ladder. So if you could discuss how we should make sense of after the rhetoric of anti-imperialist solidarity with the third world, how do we make sense of this discourse of realignment towards Europe in the context of nation building after the 90s wars? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that kind of realignment, to, that realignment towards Europe was already happening actually before the wars. Um, and, you know, if we look at, you know, this is, you know, this is something else, for instance, that, that Kilibada argues when he's asking, well, what happened to the non-line movement? Um, you know, but already in the, you know, already in the 1980s, you know, intellectuals and, and then politicians in, you know, Slovenia and Croatia in particular, were starting to, you know, we started to look more towards the European cooperation. Um, and then you get, for instance, you know, famously the you know, the Slovenian intellectuals manifesto in, in 1987, which was called Europe Now. And that's the very kind of process that, you know, Melitza Bakic Hayden and Robert Hayden, you know, observing it even before the wars had broken out, um, you know, prompted them to write their first symbolic drop of his article. Um, so, you know, it was already happening before the wars, and arguably it was one of those that was then, was then exacerbated through Slovenian and Croatian reactions to to the first aggressive steps by Milosevic, which led up to the wars. However, the meanings of wanting to return to Europe, you know, then became you know even more charged than that, of course, by as you say the the new geopolitical positions that former Yugoslavs in general found themselves in. But within, you know, within that word in general, of course, you know, that is masking, you know, everything from, you know, the experiences of Belgrade as living under economic sanctions to citizens of besieged Sarajevo to people well behind the lines in Croatia or, or equally people displaced from their homes in Croatia. Um, so there are, you know, many different experiences of the wars and of their physical effects and of their economic effects um, that we we need to take into account. But one of the one of the tropes that summarizes this from Grace, and as you say, you know, Jansen talks about this, is the idea of being treated like a third world country. And, you know, of course, you know, many Yugoslavs believed they lived in a pretty successful European country, you know, it had its crises in the 1980s, but so did Britain. And if we, you know, kind of think critically about that, you know, that discourse of, you know, experiencing post-socialism and the, the aftermath of the Yugoslav wars, you know, like being treated like a third world country, there's a big difference between a discourse that says, we, in quotation marks, shouldn't be being treated like a third world country or like Africans. And again, that's, you know, another way in which in which it's sometimes been put. And on the one hand, and on the other hand, saying we 
and the countries of what was once called the third world are both being treated in the same wrong way by the by the same oppressive systems if that makes sense um so you know they're there might be a, you know, there might be a way of thinking about that, you know, which foregrounds solidarities and a way of thinking about that which foregrounds distance. But, you know, there certainly has been as part of, you know, as you say, the realignment towards Europe, you know, a forgetting of the non-line movement. Um, Vedrana Velichkovic, for instance, um, talks about this in one of her articles on post-socialism and the, the aftermath of the Yugoslav Wars. And, you know, I think one one incredibly striking example comes from the, the history of a, a Yugoslav and Croatian linguist, um, Petar Guberina. And Guberina was somebody who started at the Sorbonne in the 1930s, and he became friends there with Aimé Césaire. And through that friendship, Césaire came to visit Guberina in, in Dalmatia, in Šibenik, and that's then supposed to be where he got the you know, where he got the inspiration for one, for one of his most famous poems. Um, Gubarina went on to be heavily involved in the foundation of African studies as a discipline in, in socialist Yugoslavia. So, you know, that was one of the very big parts of it, parts of his scholarly profile. When he died in what was then, by that point, post-Yugoslav Croatia, his obituary published by the Croatian Academy of Sciences and Arts, says nothing about that side of his work. You know, it talks a tiny little bit about his, you know, his his humanistic interest in the, you know, in the rights of all peoples to have their own language. I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing it a, a bit there. Um, but, you know, it's it's not specifically referring to any of his interests in African languages and linguistics is what I mean. Um, you know, so it's trying to bring him into a kind of canon of Croatian linguists and, you know, saying nothing at all about this much more global and Yugoslav and socialist outlook that he also had. But then if we're talking about a realignment to Europe, um, I think the question I'd bring it back to perhaps is, you know, what Europe did former Yugoslavs or, you know, equally those who wouldn't ever have defined themselves as Yugoslavs but lived in Yugoslavia, um, you know, what Europe did any of them want to be realigned with? How do we even know it's the same one? I think there might even be kind of more scope for researching that within the history of, you know, European integration, for instance. You know, in the in the conclusion of the book, I come back to a a question post-colonial sociologist Gominda Bamba asks, um, drawing on Fanon. So, you know, Fanon's remarks that the opulence of Europe was built on slavery. Now, does that include the opulence of, of Ottoman Sarajevo or the opulence of Habsburg Zagreb or independent Ragusa stroke Dubrovnik? Which Europe or Europe's are we talking about? Must identification with Europe always be identification with Europe's colonial past? Or was it or has it or will it ever be possible to imagine a a post-colonial Europe as well? And, you know, which of those, if any, are the ones that have been identified with from the perspective of the post-Yugoslav region? 
That's some fantastic questions there. Uh, I love that you brought up that line about they're treating us like the third world or they're treating us like Africans because that was a line that really stuck with me from from this part of your book. And it really captures that ambiguity. Is it a distancing move or is this set in solidarity with with the so-called third world that shouldn't be treated this way there? So, yeah, thanks so much for bringing up that line. Um I'd like to move into the the present with the refugee crisis of 2015-2016 and ongoing um, with thousands of migrants passing through what's called the Balkan route, so from the Middle East through the Balkans with the intention of getting into Western or Northern Europe. And some parallels obviously have been drawn between refugee crises within Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Um, but what was the response of ex-Yugoslav states towards these refugees, and what can this tell us about the region's relationship to race? No, that's a really good question. I think one of the, you know, one of, one of the most striking things about Bonsvart region to the refugee crisis has, you know, been the, you know, the universal assumption that, you know, this is going to be transit migration. And you know, then the, the question becomes one of should states be, you know, should states be, be letting refugees pass through or should they be holding them back at the borders? Um, so, you know, as soon as something is a universal assumption, you know, we need to be, we need to be unpicking it critically and asking, you know, well, why is that, why does that seem like such common sense? Um, you know, what kind of alternative outcomes might there be? And, you know, why are they so far beyond the, the bounds of, you know, what is thinkable or what is being thought. Um, I think one important precondition for understanding the, the refugee crisis in the Western Balkans, um, you know, is the fact that by the time 2015 came about, um, you know, there was already an existing context of the Western Balkan states, you know, being in the position of, you know, Schengen border guards. Um, and... You know, I've kind of fallen into the language of the Western Balkans here because we're talking EU policy, and that's what the EU likes to call mm-hmm. them. So, throughout the you know throughout the accession process and you know EU neighbourhood aid process, um, you know we can tell what one of the priorities of the EU, you know, was strengthening and fortifying the you know the air and land and sea border security capacities. The you know, the European Union's near near outside. And, you know, it was and it was similar in Central Europe and Eastern Europe. So, you know, we use work Ukraine as well, for instance, um on the on the on the same kind of thing. Um and you know, so this is you know, this has already left traces, you know, not just in political discourse and media discourse, um, you know, but cultural production as well. Um, and you know, there's a within the the set of films in the early two thousands, which were kind of dramatising the you know dramatising the complexities of post socialist transition and European integration. You know, there's a there's a Slovenian film by the director My Vice called Rohmeir or Guardian of the Frontier. It's one of the things that Sunny Rukatang talks about in an excellent book chapter that she wrote about um, a number of films from that kind of time from the region, which all had the figures of Chinese migrants 
in. Um, so, you know, Vice was reacting to the first sort of first sort of waves of undocumented asylum seekers from the the Middle East and from Asia who were who were transiting through Slovenia, which at that time was on the outside of the EU's border, on their way into Italy and Austria. And, you know, the the kind of questions that, you know, she raises about the ways that, you know, Slovenian nationalism has, you know, historically been able to imagine itself as, you know, on the on the bulwark of Europe in the the same, you know, the same kind of narrative very forms in in Croatia, in Poland, in Hungary and so forth. Um and, you know, Sabina Mihel is someone who's talked about that from the, you know, from an academic perspective in terms of the, the Slovenian media at the kind of turn of the millennium as well. Um, so, you know, all you know, all of this was already, you know, there in there in policy, there in material border security practices and there in the cultural imagination well before twenty fifteen. And the you know the reason that twenty fifteen was so, was so acute um, was the the situation that developed over the course of the summer of 2015, um, with hundreds of thousands of migrants who had crossed from from Turkey to Greece, then wanting to be able to to travel north before Viktor Orban stopped the Hungarian border. Um, it was, you know, once it became common knowledge that was going to happen, um, that understandably, as many people as possible wanted to to be able to get to what. They had in mind their destinations before before the winters went up. Um, so this was, you know, this was a point at which, you know, the, the Macedonian police, for instance, you know, were responsible for, you know, confronting thousands of refugees who were all trying to board trains north at Gevgelia Station. Um, you know, and then we need to ask, well, you know, why, you know, why did refugees have to cross overland in the first place? Um, you know, why were there, you know, no legal forms of air transportation they could have boarded to, you know, to get directly to, to Germany or Austria or Sweden or the UK from, from Turkey, for instance, you know, when all of those, when all of those air routes exist? Um, you know, there again, we're looking at, you know, we're looking at the racialized preconditions of you know of Schengen border policy and visa policy. Um, okay, the, the, the UK isn't in Schengen, but you know applies very similar criteria. You know, if not even more restrictive, to who is who is even able to get a visa from outside the from outside the EU to board board flights that land in its territory. So, you know, there will be there will be initial responses. Um, you know, when states were reacting very much to, you know, an, an immediate situation, and, you know, should they be should they be closing borders or should they be should they be letting refugees through? Then, you know, then more into the the situation of states being responsible or having to decide if they weren't responsible for refugees who are going to be stuck inside their borders for an indefinite length of time. Um, I think there it's also where we see the limits of talking just about states, um, you know, because it was actually, um, you know, volunteer groups who were providing a response and doing what the state either could not or would not do. Um, So, you know, in Serbia, for instance, 
the refugee relief activities which were happening in, in Belgrade, um, particularly around Mixer House and the Savamala district um, and you know then clashed directly with the the neoliberal regeneration project the Vucic government has you know has, has started there um, so you know confrontations between you know between the states and volunteerism there um, you know confrontations in in Bosnia more recently near Bihać and and Velikladusha between you know the states and international organizations responsible to some extent for refugee relief um clashing you know clashing with volunteers who who've wanted to do more for refugees who can't move forward um and then that's in the context of croatian police quite brutally according to reports pushing refugees back across the the croatian bosnian border so you know that's clearly what one of the key pinch points at the, at the time that we're talking. Um, it's in it's in volunteer responses, I think, where we see, you know, a a revival of non-aligned solidarities, perhaps, um, or maybe not revival so much as kind of expressing present-day solidarities, which can exist because of non-aligned links which existed before. So, you know, for instance, people, you know, people living in Belgrade who have got um, heritage knowledge of Arabic, for instance, have been, you know, really important as, you know, as volunteer translators and interpreters helping refugees. And, you know, very often, you know, the reasons they have that knowledge of Arabic, you know, is to do with a family background that came about where it did, you know, because of Yugoslavia's links with the Middle East during, you know, during the non-aligned period. Now, you know, where race as well as simply ethnicity is at work in refugee crisis is particularly bearing in mind the ways that the ways Muslims have been, you know, racialized in European security, especially since 9-11. You know, it didn't start with 9-11. Um, there was, you know, there was already the, the stereotype of the Arab terrorist, you know, so that was already present by the 1980s. Um, you know, but it's particularly since, you know, since 9-11, this has become so much more acute. Um, and it's gendered, of course, as well. Um, so, you know, the figure of the Muslim man in a lot of political and media discourse is not the same as the figure of the, of the Muslim woman. Um, so race is at work in, you know, defining who is thought to need help and what help they need. It's at work in shaping perceptions of who needs protecting from whom. And, you know, you see very vividly in, you know, all of the untrue social media rumours that have been circulating in Croatia for months, for instance, um, you know, about incidents of sexual violence you know, reportedly committed by by refugees. Um, a lot of you know false rumours and reports circulating, you know, circulating through the Croatian social media landscape. Um, but you know, race also shapes what is even thinkable about how to respond in the first place. So you know, at a time when the entire post-Yugoslav region is going through such a 
you know, such a pronounced period of emigration, you know, but schools are closing in, you know, some Croatian school districts because there simply aren't any children to go into the new first year. And maybe it might be exactly the time when an enterprising government might want to offer, you know, economic incentives to, you know, often, you know, highly qualified, highly trained. And, you know, without, you know, without reducing anyone for economic value, you know, highly motivated, um, ind- you know, individuals who, who might want to settle. Why is it so unthinkable that, you know, refugees, you know, might settle in Croatia or Bosnia or Serbia? It's not just, you know, it's not just because of ethnicity. It is so much more unthinkable because of a, because of a racialized divide. Mm-hmm. Thanks. I think you've given us this really great overview uh, of your book and of all the ways that the Yugoslav region is implicated in in these wider formations of race. One chapter that you devote actually at the beginning, but we're coming to it at the end, is about the Yugoslav and Albanian pop music of the 1990s and what, from a Western perspective, seemed to be its wildly confusing depictions of race, not only in the music and rhythm, but also in the the imagery in the music videos. So I've actually pulled up uh, a little song that you discuss in your book. So maybe I'll just play about a minute of it for the listeners, if that's okay. Help give some uh, some sense of the music that you discuss. Okay. So here's just the first minute or so from uh, Ivana Bamfic's 1994 hit, Shumica, or in English, Little Forest. And then I'll come back and ask you a question about it. probably quite enough um but i i hope that will give the listeners some some contents for for the next question which i mean i wish also that the the music video could be shown as well but i encourage people to to find it on youtube but i just wanted to ask you how how did you come to decipher sort of these songs and and make sense of them with with how they depict race, with how to situate this within the history of uh, Yugoslavia and its relationship to race in, in the region? Well, I mean, with that song, I think I could, all, you know, I could almost answer it in one sentence, which is, you know, <laughs> if, you're, if you're going to start a pop song with something that is supposed to sound like African chanting, 
you can't say anymore that race hasn't got anything to do with the post-Yugoslav region because, you know, the history of, you know, why are those sounds even intelligible as having something to having something to do with dancing and hypersexualized behavior and letting go like that is, you know, is a history which takes us, you know, all the way back to the, you know, to, you know, to the sexualization of Sarah Bartman and all of the kinds of, you know, racialized and hypersexualized tropes of Africanness um, was so much part of the European colonial imagination. So it's, I think this is why I say that, you know, it's, it's through popular music, maybe, you know, we see that imagination most unambiguously. And, you know, in fact, the, the single biggest matter I had to deal with when the book was going through peer review is one of the reviewers said, well, why is there a chapter on popular music first? Um, because, you know, in the, in the wider scheme of things of popular music might seem, you know, something trivial, more ephemeral. Why is, why is, why is that first? Um, and, you know, actually, I mean, besides the fact that, you know, it was through asking questions about popular music that I started the, the reading and the questioning, which then, then became the wider book, um, it's it's also that structurally popular music and those kinds of representations are, you know, where it is most unambiguous that race is part of the post-Yugoslav region's cultural imagination. The region is not outside those global frameworks. Um, you know, if it was, you know, the, the sounds of that chanting wouldn't mean anything. The associations between the the kind of dancing we see in the video and the kind of outfits and bodily decoration we see in the video with, you know, some kind of imagination of tribalism, none of that would mean anything. Um, you know, bear in mind as well, you know, if this is coming from, you know, if this is coming from 1994, this was exactly the point when pan-European rave culture was already appropriating what it imagined to be signifiers of the tribal. And, you know, I almost can't put it any more specifically than that because designers and participants might not have had, you know, more more of an idea of what tribal meant than that some of the time. Um, sorry, I'm, you know, I'm obviously generalizing about a, you know, a lot of artwork and design and cultural production. Um, but if then we conceive from popular music that that racialized and gendered and sexualized cultural imagination is at work, then that lets us ask, okay, well, you know, how else could it also have been operating in less kinds of less kinds of visible ways as well? Yeah, that's such a, a great way to put it. You can't watch a video like that and still maintain that race has nothing to do with, with the Yugoslav region. Um, so we've taken up a lot of your time. So I just want to ask you one final question. And we'll actually have two, so I'll let you choose one. Um, either if you'd like to tell us something that has been left out of the interview, but that you'd like to bring in some topic about the book, or to tell us what you're working on next, what is a, a coming up project for you? Well, I mean, one thing that, you know, maybe you you know, could have asked me about is, you know, how, you know, how people reacted to the book so far. And clearly the, you know, the book's been out for less than a year. So I suspect the, you know, the wider spectrum 
reactions are probably still yet to come. Um, you know, one of the things which has particularly struck me is, you know, when I've been, you know, when I've been seeing people comment about it, um, the ways in which, you know, the book in general, but perhaps actually, you know, even that music chapter in particular has made people, you know, made, you know, made people see things in, in different ways. So the music chapter is talking about songs which, you know, for, you know, for a lot of readers, including yourself, perhaps, you know, are, you know, are songs they remember from their childhood. But, you know, it's talking about those songs in, you know, ways which probably many people who remember those songs, you know, wouldn't ever have thought of at the time. And I think actually probably, you know, even as, as I was writing it, you know, perhaps I didn't appreciate just how far the book ends up kind of confronting the reader right at the beginning with how invisibly these kinds of racialized cultural imaginations work. So, you know, it's a demonstration then, you know, right at the front of the book of kind of how easily, you know, one's own everyday practices and tastes and memories are part of these, you know, these global formations and structures of race, which, you know, Charles Mills calls white ignorance. It's part of the structure of the global politics of race. And if you're white, you're not meant to notice them because that's how it works. So there is a, you know, a process of being able to, you know, being able to recognize what was supposed to be invisible, which in order to, you know, in order to be able to, you know, to first perceive how race and racism work, you know, and then to then to start then to start on making that, um, you know, involves for anyone who's been who's been racialized as white, you know, understanding how have they been racialized as white. Um, so, you know, it's been interesting to me to see, you know, to see some process going on even as people are thinking through their first reactions to the book sometimes. Thank you so much, Catherine, for coming on the show. I really enjoyed talking with you about this book. So that was Catherine Baker talking to us about her new book, Race and the Yugoslav Region, Post-Socialist, Post-Conflict, Post-Colonial, which came out last year, 2018, from Manchester University Press. It's a great book. I really encourage everyone to go out and get a copy uh, for those that may not be in a position to do so, the book is also available online, open access. Thank you very much. 